Hey everyone, welcome to our podcast, A Retrospective Look Across the Spectrum. I'm Kelly Birmingham, BCBA. I'm here with my partner in crime, Jennifer Lucero, mom to Dylan. Hi, Jen. Hey, Kelly. Would you please introduce our guests today? Yes, I'm really excited to have my friends here and um, just people I respect so much. Um, Mark Woodsmall and Robert Johnson from Woodsmall Law Group. Um, thank you so much for being here. And Mark, I've known you for so many years and have such a great respect for you. So we really appreciate you coming on to um, chat with us and educate us. Thank you for that. It's a great honor to be here, Jen. And yeah, it's true. It's been a number of years and we've uh, done some good work together for the community. So um, certainly happy to be here uh, with you and, and Kelly and, and to have a, an evening of sharing. I'm also really honored to have my colleague Robert Johnston with us. He's, uh, he's a really dynamic attorney here at the firm and doing some really exciting work. So we're, we're hoping that we can share some, some helpful uh, tips for families uh, in these very, very unique times. You know, it's what we're finding when we do these, uh, Jen, are that it's always the parents that are doing the work. And so I know that um, both of you have children on the autism spectrum. And so one of the things we're finding is that some of the most dynamic people are, are those that are living the experience as well. So it's doubly exciting to have two really great attorneys on with us, but also parents who are experiencing um, some of the topics we're talking about. So we have two topics to cover today and it could take forever. And we probably have to do a second and third podcast sometime. <laughs> but we wanna do our first topic where um, Jen, Jen and I have been talking with different parents about conservatorship. And, and for those that are not in California, it's guardianship. <laughs> um, and we wanted to just have you explain to us the different types of conservatorship or guardianship that families could pursue. And then second question that we'll follow up with after is once we start going back into schools, what's going to happen to all of these kids and their IEPs and um, kids that regressed and what's going to happen in our, is funding going to happen for compensatory services um, to help with regression? And I know you all have a lot of lot of information about that. So let's start off first with the conservatorship part. I think Robert, you're our, our All right. No, there's, there. there's four kinds. You have a conservatorship of the person. You have a conservatorship of the estate. And those two, um, just like they sound, conservatorship of the person, um, the conservator gets to make decisions for the conservatee about where they live, who they live with, those types of um, decisions, the conservatorship of the estate handles the finances. So the other two types of conservatorship, um, there's a Lanterman conservatorship, it's a mental health conservatorship, and that would be, oh, if you um, had a, a son, you know, in teenage years, uh, manifested as schizophrenic, that would be the type of conservatorship you would you would look at there for us um, we're going to be talking about limited conservatorships and limited conservatorships can be conservatorship at the person 
they can be conservatorship of the estate. And the reason that they're called limited is conservatorships um, generally, they just take away all of the agency from the conservatee. But archidos, um, they have a significant degree of agency and, and they can make decisions for themselves, just not always to the level where they can be 100% independent. They still need a little bit of help, but it doesn't quite rise to the level of a full conservatorship of the person. And so as a matter of fact, if you seek a conservatorship of the person, um, they, the judge will instruct the conservator to see what they can do because the general rule is you can't make any decisions for yourself. And if it's reversed in a limited conservatorship, the judge will instruct the um, conservatee, these are the things that you can't do. These are the things that the conservator is in charge of. And so that's, in a nutshell, the four different types of conservatorships in California. So how would a family, and I know it's a legal decision, but mm -hmm. what are some what are some things families might consider to de decide if they want to seek out a limited conservatorship? Well, I would start with um, what we mentioned already. The reason that there is a limited conservatorship is there there's varying degrees of um, self-direction and agency and, and decision-making skills. So, you know, I would start with, is it even necessary in the first place? And even if it is necessary, you can, you can ask the court, I need to be in charge of these aspects, but I don't need to be in charge of, you know, are they going to marry? And if so, to whom? And, and so there's, with the limited conservatorship, you don't have to go for the whole thing. And so you want to, and the goal is independent living. Yeah. And that's the role of the conservator is to help facilitate the independence of the conservative when you have limited conservatorship. So I would start with, is it necessary? Can you know my child function independently without this? And if the answer is, yes, but it would make life easier with this, then, then go for it. If you don't know, then it might be a decision that you can delay and wait and see. That's so interesting. You know, my stepdaughter is 30 and she does live independently in that she lives in her own apartment down the street from us. It is funded through a HUD voucher mm -hmm. and um, she does work uh, part-time and uh, receives SSDI. So, um, but we did not conserve her in any way, but have, and she's 30 now, but over different periods of time, we've questioned whether or not we should have done some or not, because the number one thing we most worry about is she doesn't always make the best health decisions for herself. Mm -hmm. And um, thankfully so far, we still have a good enough working relationship with her as parents. And we scaffold her a lot. So we are actually the support staff for her um, because she denied services. She, she's denied help and services from regional center. And so we, we scaffold her, but there've been times when we're not all getting along so well that we've worried about that. 
And so right. at, at any time, I'm, I'm assuming for parents could try to conserve at any time. Is that right? That's right. So if the, in your daughter's case, you know, you, you do have a burden of proof that you have to show that this person is a candidate for, you know, to be conserved and that it's, it's necessary. So the, the longer that you would wait, the more difficult the burden would be because you, know, you would just answer, have to answer the, the judge's question, why did you wait? And if the answer is, well, we didn't know if it was necessary, but here's the, what happened in the meantime, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a close case, but it is necessary and here's why, then the judge should say that satisfies my question. Um, so I'm so things. glad I asked. Do you have, a, do you have a, an advanced directive or a medical power of attorney? We, we do have a medical power of attorney, yes. And we do okay. have a special needs trust to protect our finances. Because one of, one of the issues with medical decisions is um, the HIPAA. And so unless it's, unless it's a provider that's been providing you know, medical care to your, your child for quite some time, um, doctors may be reluctant to discuss the medical decisions with you with, unless you have that's happened. something else like that in place. Yeah. yeah, that's why we got it. So yeah, partly for myself, for my son as well is, you know, I felt like I was on the timeline and there was a couple aspects of why I um, seeked limited conservatorship. Um, I, I worked um, for about a year on it um, with Mark, so thank you. And um, for me as a parent, I, I had kind of this timeline of worry one was he had an IEP coming up, which was his um, last triannual in high school, you know, then he was going to be moving into a transition um, program. And um, I was told, you know, unless you get this conservatorship, like Dylan has control of the IEP and whether or not to even be part of it, and he would have to attend and sign it. Um, so that was a little worrisome. <laughs> and then um, also, um, again, medical decisions, because um, Dylan does not, you know, prefer to um, have certain medical intervention. And so I was worried, you know, I, obviously with HIPAA too, um, my mom actually works for Chalk. So she was also pushing me like, hey, you got to get this done. But because, you know, between all of the doctors and service providers that Dylan has, um, and even insurance, you know, once that, once this kid turns 18, you know, unless you have, you know, this in place, you're going to have issues. So um, I think that's a big worry. It's interesting. Um, I've had many mentors in my life. Um, when Dylan was diagnosed at four and a half, I had some friends that had older children and they kind of guided me. And now I'm kind of in this position. I'm sure you to our as well, um, that I have a lot of friends that now have kids that are coming of age, um, that they will be 18 soon. And everybody is like calling me, texting me, sending <laughs> me messages like, what do I do? Like, you know, and I think it's extra hard right now for people because people that are actually in the process or trying to seek it are also having to deal with the fact that courts are delayed and processes are delayed because of COVID-19. 
So, um, you know, it, I think it's so important and maybe you can also just say why, uh, you know, what areas are so important if you do not have the conservatorship in place? You know, Jen, uh, I just want to jump in because I'm thinking that some of the families that heard your story might immediately go into a panic mode. And, and I want to share a couple just points just to make sure that that info is out there. Um, as is often the case, um, sometimes what you're told that, you know, in the schoolhouse isn't always 100% correct and, um, and, and not the law. Um, there are options for kids, for instance, to work with their parents with a, you know, a permission to participate after the age of 18. So conceivably, if, if you're not uh, an individual who's been conserved, you do have the right to grant special permissions for participation. And Robert alluded to it a moment ago when he was talking about uh, special purpose uh, power of attorney. Uh, something like that it exists under the Ed Code. And so if you do find yourself in that uncomfortable spot of needing to get ready to go into a transition age IEP and you're running up against a COVID court closure or, or a clogged calendar or something like that, there are opportunities for powers of attorney. Now, one of the distinctions between a power of attorney and of course a court supervised and, and granted conservatorship is the revocability of that uh, authorization, which is as long as the individual who is uh, given the permission um, retains their independence and their ability to make decisions, they can also revoke that permission. And I think for families that um, are going through the process and sometimes as we know, there are pressures on our young people to do certain things, uh, maybe even they, they might even receive some undue pressure from their um, educators and teachers and that kind of thing. But um, just to know that the, those options are out there. Um, you, you alluded to a moment ago, there are seven powers. And, and uh, I think uh, to Robert's point, you know, I think it's, you look, at, you look at all of the available options and I think it's incumbent upon the, um, conservator or the, the, the conservator in the waiting, let's say, to make sure that they're rolling out the protections um, in a judicious kind of way. And of course, this isn't entirely upon their discretion. I mean, the court is looking at this with, you know, with, with, for fine detail. You also have, if the young person is um, uh, client to the regional center, the regional center is going to need to also do a report. And uh, there will also be a court investigator and the court investigator is going to come to the family home, interview um, the proposed conservative, and and there's so there's a series of checks and balances in this process that of course err on the side of individual liberty and the opportunity for our young people to preserve their rights. Um, and so it's it, there are a lot of options, but of course there 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 are protections all along the way, which which I think we all would want, uh, right? As we talk about you know maybe tendering some of our individual liberties and, and choice making. One thing that I thought was actually to your point really cool um, when it came to Big D, my son was, um, when he was interviewed, um, he expressed that he wanted the right to vote. And, um, you know, for me, that just was so awesome. And I was just really excited about that. Of course he needs to vote for the right person, but <laughs> that's a whole other story. But I just thought that was really cool. And honestly, I wasn't even really aware of it until the judge mentioned it. And I thought that's great, you know, good for him. So 
Um, yes, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to send anybody into panic mode or anything, but <laughs> I do think to your point, um, you know, there is just maybe this underlying pressure or thought process of you have this, you know, time frame that, you know, boom, the day they turn 18, you better have this done. <laughs> so I'm glad there to know that. And for everybody that's going through this, that there's other options out there too. Well, conventional wisdom would suggest that we start the process with enough time to try to bring it in ahead of, you know, that 18. Uh, because you, you want to have something as soon as possible. I think, Kelly, you alluded to this, and I know I've experienced this myself. My, my son is turning 22 this year. He's conserved and all the, all, with all powers. And I'll tell you, you know, each time we, we find ourselves in um, the unpleasant circumstance of the emergency room or other mm -hmm. kind of scenario, like Robert was suggesting with the new provider that maybe doesn't know us as well as, you know, someone who's historically worked with our family. There's this tense few moments where you're hoping that the charge nurse or whomever is working in the ER understands um, the complexity of our young people, the fact that, you know, that they have a range of abilities and that, well, you know, the old saying, if you've met a person with autism, you've met a person with autism. Um, you know, our, our children are so very unique and wonderful and, and different in many ways, uh, one from the other. So that's, that's why I, I think, you know, the flexibility and the individual tailing, tailoring that's available under the laws associated with conservatorship in California is so key. But those, those um, documents, you have to have them at the ready. We have a go pack um, for, our, for our guy. And if we have to, you know, go, go to the hospital and it happened a few months back actually in the height of COVID, which was terribly scary. But we have, we took our go pack. My, my wife ran for the go pack. I started working on my diplomacy with the paramedics to help them understand that I needed to go to a certain hospital because my team was there ready to receive my son. And it, you know, all the things with our, with our guys and gals, they're so different um, than so many traditional questions of simple things like going to the hospital. Um, so, you know, ha having, having that preparation and the ability to be ready at a moment's notice in an emergency is key. And I would say doing your legal homework in advance, getting those documents in order early, it, to, you know, is always, always uh, the preferred course. What age, what age are you, how long does it take? What age would you, do you suggest families to start? I'd suggest 17th birthday is a good trigger. Sometimes in there will be milestones where you, you say, okay, what's what's next? So the kiddo turns 17, you've got one year until they're 18th. That's a great time to ask, should we do a conservatorship? Because it, it's going to take at least six months um, to work its way through the courts. Wow, okay. Jen, isn't that about when you started? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I thought so. I thought it was right at 17. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and of course, like Mark said, you know, you meet one person with autism, you met one person with autism. Um, you know, when I talk about Big D, like he is severely impacted. So for, for my situation, it was kind of a no brainer that like this needs to be done, you know? Um, but of course there's going to be individuals with all different levels of abilities and um, you know er areas that they will need assistance from so it's it's definitely something to really um, 
do your research and consider like especially the seven different um, areas and which ones they're most appropriate and no matter what even if you know your child like is severely impacted of course you know you still want to push them to you know be you know the best that they can be and most independent that they can be and um you know and it's assist in any way possible and so it's it's great to see even with conservatorship like how much Dylan has grown um through the years and like how many things he he has been able to achieve and I know that's probably the case with all of our children so um I think if anything it's just a positive thing uh, but it's definitely a, a very personal individualized decision to make and you can go Actually, I don't know this. Can you go back and remove one of the areas you can serve if, if you decide to change that? Are you able to do that? Sure. So it's not forever. It's, it's forever unless you take action to change it, but you can, you can take the action to change it. Um, if you... If you look up some of the material that you know Disability Rights California puts out there on on conservatorships, it's geared toward the conservatee. And a lot of the frequently asked questions are, "How do I remove my conservatorship? How do I become you know get less restricted?" And and so there's you just have to move the court to issue an order that that gives you you know that one of those powers back. But so interesting because this just this morning I was on a policy summit meeting with the National Council on Severe Autism, and that's where I heard them start. They were talking about this topic where there seems to be this wave of of families that are strongly against conservatorship because they feel that they're taking away their children's rights, and that was a big topic on this policy summit today. You, you know, I think in any time you're um, wading into issues of neurodiversity, yeah, I think we we have to we have to keep an open mind about the individual capabilities of our kids. You know, I I, I sometimes find myself forcing myself to to remember that our society tends to value the individual based on what they can say or how they can express themselves in the moment. And when you consider the fact that autism in particular, but developmental disabilities in general, often involve difficulties in, you know, in a disability of communication, there's something inherently unfair about rushing to judgment about the individual capability of that person. Um, and I think, I think the desire to preserve individual rights and individual choice always has to be paramount. I think that there are issues of, um, of just practicality in terms of how, um, you know, the partnerships between adults with disabilities and their parents evolve. Um, exactly. It goes both ways, right? Yep. I mean, we have to... <laughs> simultaneously work with the young person on discovering what it means to be an adult. And that narrative frankly <laughs> plays out with all persons, um, disabled or not. But I think that the second narrative is really about, hey, mom and dad, you know, are, are, you, are you really um, wanting to continue to run your um, adult child's life 
in the same manner and, and, and method as you did when they were eight or 10. Mm. I mean, there has to be this natural um, progression of the development of the relationship between the adult with disabilities and their parents that mirrors and approximates what a typical person would experience, which is, okay, it's time for us to start planning for the next phase. And that, what does that adult relationship look like? And, and how, how will it be defined? And it, these are tricky questions. And, and it's natural that I think that elements of the community, especially with the, an awareness of all of the capabilities for our young people, um, that we would be having these very difficult, very difficult discussions. Yeah, definitely. Thank it's you, Mark. I totally went there. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for yeah, picking up I mean, my cue. I went for it. <laughs> please do. I mean, these these are these are really these are. I don't know. I'm kind of geeking out over here. If 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 that's an appropriate way to say it, but it, it's you know just you really can you can take a deep dive um, yep. in the policy and societal ramifications of these questions, and it starts you know kind of how we do things with, with our practice group, everything is about the person. And it's, it's about a child-centric or a person-centric approach. And if you start there, everything else works. Um, you know, whether it's that difficult IEP process or whether it's, you know, the complex questions associated with an adult matriculating up and transitioning to the next phase, it still has to start with the person. Um, and as long as you do that, um, you know, I, I, think, I think everyone ends up smiling. I, at least that's my hope. That's awesome. That's so true. When you're talking about phases, here's another one that I thought of that, that would actually impact both you and I, Mark. Um, your, the other children, so the siblings, right? So when I got the limited conservatorship of Dylan, um, my younger son, they're only 23 months apart, but he was obviously not um, old enough to become part of the conservatorship, but he is actually already, he's 19 now, and he's already expressed like questions and worrying about Dylan and the future. And um, obviously, you know, I don't, he doesn't want, and I don't want him to have to quote, take him on, um, like living with him or anything like that, but we know at some point in time that he might be responsible to help make best decisions for, you know, Dylan um, long-term, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. And he is definitely open to that. Um, once you have this in place, like, is it easy or how difficult is it later on to maybe add the sibling on as part of the conservatorship? Well, I, I think uh, to Robert's point, it's really a matter of petitioning the court for an adjustment of the documentation. There are some natural check-ins that uh, already are incumbent in the process, which is uh, once the conservatorship is granted, the court maintains jurisdiction for purposes of checking in. Mm -hmm. And um, you'll have uh, uh, biannual uh, check-ins and th those are opportunities, I think, to introduce the, you know, the, the willing sibling to, to this role. You know, I've always said um, for, for the parents who are working with this very difficult question, you, I think you hope that your um, non-disabled uh, or sibling without disabilities um, wants to serve in this role. But, but I think I've always struggled with the idea of 
telling the child that that's their role. I, I mean, I think we have to raise them to hopefully want to seize that role. But the question becomes, you know, will you ultimately choose it? And, you know, I, I, I would echo that. I mean, my, my daughter is only 16 and she's already telling me things like, well, my future husband needs to be really good with Andrew and that's gonna be an absolute um, prerequisite. That's like a deal killer for her future husband. And she's not even out of high school yet. And I'm thinking every time that she does so says something like that, I, of course I do these sort of um, these victory uh, uh, pumps in the air, like, thank God she's, she's such a good kid. But, but the reality is, it's like, you know, you, you want that family unit to stay intact, but you don't want to lean on that child mm -hmm. because, you know, um, they, they have to be ready. They have to be ready from a maturation perspective and, and, and it has to mesh with them philosophically. And I think that's an individualized question as individual as our families. Yeah, I totally agree. And then it's funny because I was actually more where I didn't want to even go there with Ethan and he's the one that brought it up and um, he went as far as he pushed me just for later we he wanted to go look at group homes but he insisted on going with me and it was interesting because he came up with like all these questions that I wasn't even thinking about like when we visited them and he like noticed something and he was like, well, wait a minute, why, you know, it says 18 to 59 here. Like what happens to them? What are you going to do with them when they turn 59? But he was just like this little wow. mini, I don't know, maybe he's been hanging around you too long, Mark. He was <laughs> like, he's like the interrogator, you know, like, okay, I have questions. Like, and he was just so good about it. Like, you know, what do you do if this, um, if the person doesn't sleep at night or what, you know, what's the protocol of, you know, Dylan loves to like eat other people's food or throw things away. Like, what are you going to do about that? <laughs> but I just thought it was great. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, I, I always worry about the pressure of it, but it is also like, you know, these awesome, like that awesome victory wins and they come up with these, ideas themselves and express it right it's just like a really good feeling like okay I did something right <laughs> yeah exactly all right I'm gonna ask you I'm gonna ask you guys in as best as you can talk to us about the state of education and IEPs right now and what kinds of things can families be expecting as they start to go back to school Loaded wow. question. <laughs> so do you want us to put that into like a minute or? <laughs> like three or four minutes. <laughs> oh, okay. So, wow. Um, it's, it's frustrating. Tell them why, Mark. <laughs> so one of the things that we find so interesting is in this firm, we keep a tabulation of the number of school districts that we've worked in over the years. And that, that, number is currently 78. Wow. And over the years, you, you realize that in different school districts, you have different ways of doing things. You have teachers unions in some places that are more developed and more, you know, more assertive than in other places. Um, and so you, you end up with this sort of patchwork of local interpretation. And then you add to the complexity, the patchwork of California law, and then you add to the complexity, the federal. Wow. 
So when we're talking about special education, so this is a quick juris, uh, a jurisdiction lesson. This is what uh, 1L students have to deal with, which is understanding choice of law and which court is responsible for which. And I'll try not to bore anyone, but it goes something like this. IDEA, the, the statute associated with IEPs is a federal statute. Anytime federal government sets a statute, they basically set the floor. And this means that the rights that must be granted can go no lo lower than the minimum of what's included in, in our law. That's the floor of the statute. Now the states have the right to set the ceiling, which is as long as the rights are being met at a federal level, at the floor, at the minimum, states can enhance those rights and they can build, you know, build them up. And of course, each state has to decide if it's going to buy into the federal law or not. And if they don't buy into the federal law, then they're not entitled to the federal money. And so, as you might imagine, the local, uh, each state, of course, wants the federal government's money. And so they have to buy into this, this statutory scheme. So what happens? Well, the federal government sets a series of laws and then the states come about and they say things like, oh, COVID-19 in California means X, Y, and Z. Then the federal government had to issue a series of clarifying memos. Back in March of uh, 2020, there was a lot of misinformation flowing, tons, in fact. Yeah. And um, the federal government had to issue a memo very clearly to say, look, we haven't suspended the rights of students with special education needs. There are certain emergency measures that have to be put into place, and there's an allowance for that. But if you're allowing general education students to continue in their education, special ed students are entitled to continue to have the rights of their IEP implemented. Now, if you've closed the whole school system wholesale, there's no school at all, well, that's, that's different. That means that everybody's a, a subject to the same rules, that there is currently no protections. But the moment that gen ed students were given opportunities, even distance learning, et cetera, then special ed students were of course then entitled to their full rights. Now, the federal government issued its memo to clarify that the rights remained. And a lot of us in the field were sort of holding our breath and saying, what's gonna happen next? Because <laughs> this is an emergency scenario, uh, cataclysmic development of circumstances that may erode all of our kids' rights. And this is really a scary thing. So no, the federal government stayed stay true and uh, to form and, and, and we kept our rights. So thereafter, we had a second, second memo issued by um, the federal government. And this one um, came about because the first memo um, essentially wasn't being followed. Um, that is that even though um, the federal government had said, yes, we still have these rights, these rights are still in place, um, the school systems across the country weren't following. So um, on the 28th of September, the U.S. Department of Education issued an updated guidance memo. And, and I always get a kick out of this. Anytime the federal government starts putting things in like italicized or bold, mm -hmm. you know that they really mean it. And like schools are supposed to read this with some, some degree of uh, uh, seriousness. Um, some of the language from the September 28th, 2020 memo say things like, Teams remain responsible for ensuring that a free appropriate public education is provided to all children with disabilities. That's all in bold. Wow. Like, that's sort of like, come on folks. Yeah. Um, at that time, the memo provided, the district had a duty to update a FAPE offer based on changed needs and circumstances, which means that we still had the same obligations to identify what the individual needs were, COVID or not, and, and program for them. Um, 
the uh, the memo said things like non-meeting amendments to the IEP could still take place as long as the parent and district agree to waive formal requirements. So we had all of this flexibility in meeting. Nice. Um, extended school year services were supposed to happen. Yep. Didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, the government, the federal government was rather clear about it, that if you missed out on ESY, as a school system, you needed to be ready to engage in compensatory education. Um, and uh, there was a final reminder in that, in that September memo that said that evaluation still has to occur at least once every three years, that you can't hiatus triennials just because of COVID. And, um, and so many school districts had adopted this notion under the California state guidelines that assessments were somehow off the table, not right. correct. Um, the assessment process in California went on, uh, went, went on a relative uh, hold on in terms of the obligation to issue new assessment plans. And it, it, it wasn't exactly a prohibition, but it was a clarification that through July of 2020, there was some question. But after that, it was clarified and, and, um, and at that point obligations for assessments were necessary. So then we had all of these series of questions associated with well, if assessments are still necessary. Our school system isn't doing any in person. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if your school system isn't doing assessments, then they need to be in a position to contract with those who do, which means a series of independent assessors were available, et cetera. Now, simultaneous with all of this, California started implementing some new, um, uh, some new guidance as well. And Governor Newsom is quoted as saying, look, classrooms are closed, but learning must continue. Um, in California, we uh, enacted a series of uh, special uh, educational code uh, adjustments uh, to create, for instance, uh, a distance learning plan. And um, this is now, I think it's enshrined at California Education Code section uh, 56345. And at least as uh, with the next annualized IEP, every IEP in California has to have uh, a distance learning plan that's individually tailored. Now we were finding all kinds of issues across the board. Um, general distance learning plans, plans that were developed without the parents ever having a say or a seat at the table. And of course, all of these issues ultimately are um, going to be coming up in the next months. I mean, unfortunately, we're, we're all facing a very, very difficult span of period where we're trying to figure out um, what happens next. Um, we, we, have a, we have a series of guidances on this point, and if, I don't know how your podcast especially works, but um, if you would like, we've done some writings and we would be happy to forward those along so that as people tune into this broadcast, they could access um, uh, clickable links to go to the documents if that would prove helpful. Wow, that's um, One last thing, because I know you gave me a minute to tell you all. <laughs> um, you know, um, I think it's I think it's time to have some hope. The American Rescue Plan for Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. The, it's uh, because we love acronyms and in special education or education as a whole, this is called the A-R-P-E-S-S-E-R. -E um, so do that five times quick, right? <laughs> but you, you're now looking at an approximate $122 billion in relief for, for K through 12. Wow. 
Um, that equates to about $4,300 per student. Um, in California, California schools are expected to receive 15.3 billion in that aid or 4,300 per student, but the amount will vary amongst how the districts uh, allocated. And- Did you say 50.3 billion? 15.3 billion. 15.3 billion, wow. That, for California. For California. Wow. School districts are required to use 20% of the funding to make up for lost learning through programs such as summer school, tutoring, and counseling. But here becomes the question. What happens when you have this influx of fund? Mm -hmm. And of course, you have local control largely for how this fund will be distributed. Um, I, I think from our perspective, we think this is a good time for the dialogue um, to, to go the direction of what the parents are seeing and how they would like their local schools to respond to the educational needs of that community. And I would suggest that there needs to be a discussion about what's been lost. I mean, look, everyone can talk about COVID and I'm sure we have, everyone can cite the loss. Right. Some people have found the benefit. Um, maybe you found both. But the reality is um, we've, we've, we've got a um, monumental task in front of us, which is what do we do about getting these guys and gals back up to the levels where they were operating before and how do we make learning meaningful? I expect it's gonna be a very busy summer of learning. Yes. <laughs> what do you say? I, I'm willing to put money on that. Good money. Definitely. Wow. wow. Well, whew. <laughs> this is good. This, we're not done with this topic for sure. No, uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, I'll throw a lob out another thing that I probably shouldn't, but I've spent, <laughs> I've spent much of this year as a VCBA fighting insurance companies to help support those kids that could not access distance learning. And we won some and we lost a whole bunch. And I, as BCBAs, you know, we, we're, we watched um, as practitioners, a number of kids significantly regressed. Now some did great, actually. Some kids we know thrived during this pandemic. And on our last podcast, we talked to an owner of a private school for kids with autism, and she's doing some research on that to sort of see like who did okay and who didn't do okay as far as the academic portion. But man, we're going to have to talk to you guys again this summer. <laughs> well, there's actually a really helpful statute I'd love to throw out in response. Okay. Um, for regional center eligible families, um, the Landerman Act already provides uh, protections for situations that you just described, which is, I believe it's 4659 of, of the Welfare and Institutions Code talks about the regional center's duty to serve as payer of last resort. Right. And so um, some people have some confusion about what happens if the parents have engaged in an insurance appeal that didn't go well. Insurance companies, uh, school districts, uh, Medi-Cal, on and on. These are what's, what are called generic providers. And if the family pursues generic provision of service, but somehow is not able to secure those services, the regional center stands by as the safety net or payer of last resort. So our, our young people shouldn't be going without essential services because their health insurance company is saying no. Um, and, and so, take a moment to, and it's really not too easy to find this information, but like I said, it's the specific search term is payer of last resort. I think you can find it at WIC 
4659. So this is California specific guidance, of course. And um, if you search some of the OAH decisions on pair of last resort, the concept will be clarified. But um, I say that because I'm big on extending hope and I believe that people need to know that there are solutions even when you feel like you're in a dark place. Um, you know, you may not always want to go the distance to, to get to that relief, but the relief is there. Wow. I feel like we just got so much free law service from you guys. Thank you so much. We definitely will reach out to you again if, whenever we can. So thank you so much, you guys, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you.